people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. There now follows a special broadcast by the Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Sir Mortimer Crisp, N.P. Good evening. Tonight, as I speak to you, we face the gravest crisis in our nation's history. This is the Network News, Washington. I'm Dan Hickey. Good evening. Grave crisis in Great Britain as the tiny island of Maguadoro is invaded. The British Prime Minister sends in the troops in another desperate bid to cure unemployment. All right, well done. Support the, the President Prime calls an emergency meeting with White House advisors. We need to hump out wide, hype up the squeaks bag before they screw down the jam box. Escalation as reports show a possible Russian cover-up. This is the dining room. We regret to announce that all our dining tables are as booked up as can be. The Russian premier was unavailable for comment. Stay tuned for more up-to-the-minute reports from Loretta Swift. You're telling me that the entire population of Great Britain went and elected a deranged psychotic to the highest office of the land. Again? Peter Cook. Unemployment in this country is caused by pixies. Ian Richardson. What the world needs now is a miracle. Alexei Sale. See you later, alligator. Michael Richards and Rick Mayall. All right, my sons! Get the bomb disposal, guys. There is no alternative. Whoops! Apocalypse! Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Josh Adley. I'm always the syphilis that just will not leave Mike White's brain. Also back in the booth is Mr. Mike Sullivan. I'm very excited to talk about Andrew Marshall and David Renwick. I mean, it's just been a long time dream come true. This is something I bottled up inside me for years, so it's nice to finally get it out. On this episode, we are discussing the 1986 comedy whoops apocalypse based very loosely on the 1982 british tv series of the same name it's the story of chicanery and political intrigue centered on the obscure and fictional territory of santa maya a power struggle around this small island leads to heightened tensions between the uk us and ussr we will be spoiling the film as much as we can spoil it so be warned so josh when was the first time you saw Whoops Apocalypse, and what did you think? Well, you said 1986, and that's the British date. It came to America in 88, and I caught it on VHS, either 89 or 90. 
I rented it because, you know, it had a funny title and a funny cover. And I hated the hell out of this. I've come around. I have a lot of good things to say about it, so don't worry. But when I was 16, I hated this movie. None of the jokes landed. I thought it was stupid. I hadn't seen the miniseries at this point. So I saw it as a teenager, and I was just too young to get it. And Mike, how about yourself? I caught on HBO, I think it was towards the end of the 90s. And I like just caught the ass end of it. Basically, what I caught was the Rick Mayel bit, which is the best part of the movie. It is. Yeah. At the time, I was a huge Young young Ones fan, and everything about it just screamed, especially the music in that scene, just screamed Young Ones to me. For years, I, I tried to find it in used video stores. It was a problem. And then eventually, like in 99, I finally found the VHS copy, and I loved it then. And, and look, it's a very flawed movie. I, I'm sure we'll get into it. Uh, you know, rewatching it again, it, it, you can see those flaws. Those flaws are present and they're glaring, but there's still so much about this movie that I love. Yeah, I, I, I just love Whoops Apocalypse. I don't know where you guys stand on it, but it's a movie that uh, it's a favorite of mine. One of my favorites. I don't know how this got onto my list, personally. I was looking around last night, especially as I was watching the movie for a second time. And I was just like, where the hell did this come from? Why is this on our list of things to cover? Is it because of political tensions that are going on in the world? Probably not, because I put this list together back in September. So, yeah, I have no idea. So I had never seen it until recently. I had never seen the original British version until recently. And I'm hoping you guys can kind of talk me through why you like it so much, because I was just like, what is happening here? I didn't mind the British version, and we'll talk about that more in the second half of the show, but the American version just felt so uneven. There were moments where it was trying to do like ZAZ style comedy, especially the the guards who are uh, punching out everybody, including the little girl. Loretta Swit, it was just like, I was like, what is she doing here? I'm not exactly sure what's happening. It feels like we should be making fun of America a lot more, but instead it's really focused almost totally on the Brits. And it, it, obviously this comes from Britain, but it feels like the parody and the, the satire is just aimed almost strictly at Britain and the rest of it needs to be skewered a lot more. For whatever reason, this movie was made with American audiences in mind, which is very bizarre because the original series was only released in Britain up until maybe about 86. I, I don't know when the Pacific Arts VHS came out in America, but everything about it just screams, we, we, we're, we need to get an American audience. We need to make this like a crossover hit. And I don't think it was, but I think that's why America gets off easy when it shouldn't have. But that's my theory anyway. And I actually think the best and meanest joke in the movie is a big shot at sort of at America, but it's made by one of the British characters to themselves. Loretta Swit is trying to talk to at this point, completely off the wall, Peter cook. He's totally crazy. He's going to drop nukes on the fictional country that I can't pronounce. Sorry, Mike, the, in, in the movie. And she says, how will killing millions of people solve any problem? And Peter cook totally straight face goes sure as hell. Shut the Japanese up. That's the kind of humor I belly laughed at that. That was just like so 
mean-spirited, yet it's weirdly a British line, though, isn't it? They do some of the same things as far as having a news program, a news commentator take us through this whole thing. And they kind of rely on that news commentator to fill in a lot of holes and to walk us through the narrative a lot more. This one, like the British version, has a lot of different things happening all at the same time. You know, I mentioned the USSR, the US, Great Britain. So you have all of those stories going on all at the same time being cross-cut. You also have these two journalists, I suppose these guys are. Then they're going around doing their thing and they find this tropical island very similar to Cuba. There's uh, Alexi Sale hanging out on this island. That, I think, might have been... The part that I found the funniest, I love Alexi Sale, and I really enjoyed when they find that island and all of those guys all in their you know, Hawaiian shirts, exactly the same Hawaiian shirt, almost all of them balding, all of them overweight. They are Americans, Mike. All of them uh, running from room to room. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on in here. And then you have Michael Richards as the spy lacrobat, and he is constantly moving throughout this entire story and really is kind of the driving force of the whole thing. Does anyone think he was the first choice? Because I feel like he was either the fifth or sixth choice. He was actually my problem with the American version because everyone else, even when they're in an absurd situation, like Alexi Ciel, Peter Cook, Loretta Swit, they're playing it 100% straight. Michael Richards is playing this like it's a fucking cartoon. And his character, the same character, I know we'll talk about the miniseries later, was played by John Cleese in the miniseries. And John Cleese played that same character in that part so much better. Michael Richards, who does do full blackface in this movie, surprise that hasn't come to hit him yet, he is the one who kept yanking me out of the film again and again and again. He's the biggest problem this movie has, I think, is Richards. What I didn't like about what his character, and I guess we'll get to this later, when John Cleese played the same character, he was like this master of the skies where, you know, every one of the identities, you know, was obviously like a broad stereotype, but there was also, there were different characters on top of it. When Richards was playing, you know, these different identities, it still, it had like this sort of oily cheesy uh, veneer to it like every character was the same and every character was unsavory and the thing is is like you know in spite of the things michael richards has done i do find him funny like i think he's funny in like transylvania six five thousand which is not a good movie but he's funny in that obviously seinfeld he's funny on seinfeld he is so deeply grating and not good in this movie this is right off the heels of fridays where he was he was good on fridays he's terrible at this. You brought up Transylvania 65000. I was going to bring that up. It's almost like he's playing an American version of that same character, the same facial expressions, the <laughs> stuff that he does. It's like he's still in Transylvania 65000 mode. And to be fair, I think they would have been shot pretty close together. So, not to diverge too much, but like, did either of you guys watch Walking Dead at all, the TV series? No, not really. Jeffrey Dean Morgan plays Negan on that, and he has a very sing-songy way of doing his dialogue. And while he was still doing that, he did the Rampage movie with The Rock. 
and his character did the same kind of sing songy dialogue. You know, it's like certain actors just can't pull themselves out of a certain role. And I think that's what Richards did here. He was basically playing his Transylvania 6 5000 character, I thought, just as like an assassin troublemaker, whatever the hell Lacrobat was supposed to be. Yeah, I think he's supposed to be like Carlos the Jackal type of thing, where he's he's always behind the scenes and doing all this chicanery and just putting the throwing the monkey wrench into the works. His whole thing, too, where he kidnaps Princess Wendy, who I guess is like a Princess Die stand-in, that kind of works. But then there's that weird scene with like Buford T. Justice, the guy from um the man with the golden gun who shows up, uh, uh, Clifton James, right? What is this scene even doing in the movie? It actually adds nothing. It just is a chance for us to see the woman that plays Princess Wendy in bondage gear. But that's it. It, it doesn't make sense that he stops at this place, that he's putting on this roadside show, that he's doing any of the stuff that he's doing. And th- then he leaves. I mean, you could cut that whole scene out. No one would miss it. They change the character, or not so much the character of Lacrobat, but the purpose of him. To compare and contrast, John Cleese's version of the character wasn't kidnapping a princess. He stole a quark bomb from America, and he was trying to detonate it overseas to start World War III. Lacrobat kidnaps a princess. It doesn't really level out the same way for how they wrote it. I, I mean, I'm... I do like the miniseries better than the movie, but they really gimped the Lacrobat character in the movie. I don't know why they didn't keep the same plot line with him, because it would have still fit in the plot of the movie, actually. I had one of the those Monty Python books that was um, like after Python, and uh, they interviewed like John Cleese about this. I remember he was just he was like shit talking Marshall and Renwick, and he said they just I I don't typically like what they do. They always go for the cheap gag. Maybe that's why. Maybe they wanted Cleese for the movie, and Cleese just said no because he didn't he didn't like their style of comedy. I don't know. It feels like they're aiming at an American audience. So so many of these British actors were repla- replaced by American actors, including Lacrobat, of course. And, and to me, speaking of the American cast, I actually thought Loretta Swit was pretty good as the one of the few straight characters, because she's the one who's reacting to all the nonsense going on around her. Like, wait, are we in a candid camera sketch? But to me, it was her aide, Daniel Benzali. Now, I've seen him in so many TV shows, and he has this Alex Jones-style voice. But he's got a high-pitched voice in this. I don't know if they pitched him up or if he did a voice or if he hadn't settled into the Alex Jones gravelly thing. It always sounded like he was dubbed, but he clearly wasn't. I don't know if anyone else noticed that. Also, one of our other aides, Shane Rimmer, wasn't he like one of the voices on the Thunderbirds? I don't know that, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, you're cutting deep there, Mike. I'm a bit of an Anglophile. I just, I know like the Brit, I recognize the British character. I, uh. Go. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go on. Yes, he was Scott Tracy on Thunderbirds. Swit is playing it so straight, and I agree. I think she does a pretty good job in this. Cook, on the other hand, is so far out. Though it's interesting, he starts off as being pretty even keel, but then he quickly changes. It's like there's 
it doesn't seem like there's an inciting incident for him to suddenly change and suddenly start talking about how pixies are to blame for unemployment and how he comes up with the idea of curing unemployment by having 10,000 people jump off of a cliff. And these days, 2022, all of these things that he's saying, I'm like, okay, this doesn't surprise me that there's a leader of a free nation saying absolutely ridiculous, bad, crazy shit, and nobody's calling him on it. Maybe in, you know, five, ten years, they'll write a book about it and how crazy he is. But for now, <laughs> he's just saying fucking crazy things and everybody's going along with it. Loretta Swit actually has a good line about that after she realizes he's crazy with all the pixies and stuff, which, by the way, the worst are the invisible kind. She goes on this rant about how, how did they elect this, you know, lunatic maniac who's clearly crazy? And then she pauses and goes, again. The again might have gotten a chuckle from me. Because that definitely felt like it was very much the British humor coming through and poking fun at their own PMs. But you you also had sort of broad humor with the PMs, too. Like Peter Cook's very first speech, there's fist fights going on behind him in Parliament, and then a horse rides by. That's very Monty Python humor right there. Swit is the former VP, now president, because the the previous president has passed away and that he was a circus clown, this whole thing of his funeral and the uh, clowns driving the car with the casket in the back. Uh, Mike, I know you posted a screen grab of uh, all the men on stilts carrying the casket as well. Did that look like that was from a Jodorowsky movie, Mike? It totally did. It honestly looked like something from Sansa Sangre. <laughs> Well, and you also have Murray Hamilton, clearly as a Nixon stand-in, who only speaks in buzzwords from prison. I thought that was a weird little side diversion, but it did make me giggle that he only speaks in buzzwords, which I didn't even think was that big of a thing in the 80s. In my estimation, this is a whole dish of worms that could squeal antsy in the long ticket. We need to hump out wide, hype up the squeak bag before they screw down the jam box. Excuse me. Always fox the grease monkeys. They won't tango till you crack down the fish pot. You can't risk hell shit with a bunch of Lulu pig suckers! I feel like Herbert Lom is kind of wasted as General Mascara of, uh, is it Meguadora, the country. So the, the whole thing is that it's, it kind of reminds me of what is it, uh, Dominican Republic and Haiti, where it's like one island, two countries. And they even start with a scroll where they talk about how the British annexed this land, um, Santa Maya by planting a flag in a dead man's stomach kind of thing, you know, like really bloody kind of thing. And then Queen, I think it was Queen Elizabeth's quote about how it was just basically a big shithole, but it's British now. So Lom as Mascara ends up taking over this British territory, and that's really what kicks it off. Obviously, if you're alive at this time, you're just like, okay, this is the Falkland Islands. This is very much that situation. But this is all set. This is all set in the Caribbean. So obviously, it can't be the Falklands. I'm surprised they were doing Brezhnev jokes in '86. I mean, I get it with the with the TV series because I think Brezhnev it was '81, right, when uh, the series went ahead, or '81, '82. So I, that would make sense then. But 
was it Gorbachev in power at that time or no? I can't remember. I guess maybe there wasn't much to work with at the time. I don't know. Yeah, Gorbachev, he came to power for sure in 1990. But yeah, I think he was like, I think he was prime minister before there was premier or something like that. Because yeah, it was like that whole Reagan was the one who says, Mr. Gorbachev, tear this wall down. So that's obviously during Reagan's term of office, which is when this is. Yeah, so I was like shocked they were still making Brezhnev jokes in it. Like I didn't notice that before I saw watched it again yesterday. Brezhnev and well, yeah, Yeltsin came after, but it was like Brezhnev and I'm trying to remember who else was in there between Khrushchev and Gorbachev, but it felt like he was kind of like the gold standard for what your Soviet premier is supposed to look like. And they had to jumpstart his nipples with car batteries. In the British version, the American CIA agent has a radio in his nipple. So they still do nipple jokes in both of them, but they're different nipple jokes. This movie is is rife with people jumping through window jokes. When Lacrobat uh, releases the dog, and then there's another one where somebody else jumps through a window. And I was like, okay, I guess that's your thing here. The one thing that really got me with this American version of Whoops Apocalypse is the, well, the British character, the rear admiral, who is in this, I guess he's very openly gay, which, you know, good for him. But I don't know if 1986, 1988, it was probably much more of a laugh line. They didn't play it for laughs, though. I actually thought that that was really respectful i mean he's gay he has a boyfriend later he has a lover that wakes up in bed with him they're never played for for giggles it's never uh look he's gay and he's in the military never once weird restraint we're introduced to the characters there is like the shock you know shock twist that the person taking the muffins out of the oven is a dude so there's that and they did a similar gag. I think you know this, Mike. Maybe you know this too, Josh. They did a similar gag in Bloodbath the House of Death, where the joke was that these two men are gay. You know, and it seemed like that was like a, like a common comedy trope in like 80s British comedies. Like there was like a, a twist that the characters were like gay. Can you imagine? You see in a lot of British sitcoms, the gay plotline, it's very swishy. It's very flaming. That's true. Yeah. They, they, they yeah. never played him being gay as the joke though other than maybe during the later on during the uso show when the women start taking their tops off he looks a little uncomfortable but other than that that's the only real yeah this guy doesn't get into boobs thing yeah when he also stops those two women that are there next to the uh mascara standee and they're topless and then those um the reporters, reporters are taking all those pictures. Yeah, he seems very offended by that. But it seems like he's more offended by impropriety than he's offended by boobs. There were a lot of boobs in this. I was shocked. Given the miniseries, I was shocked when random boobs popped up. I'm like, man, British television versus American 80s television, man. That's why I watched Benny Hill. That's the only reason I watched Benny Hill. That's a fair reason, though. Well, especially when I was watching it at like 10, 12 years old. Yeah. I watched it for the casual elder abuse. Oh, yeah. Patting that guy on the head and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That was my favorite part. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Yakety Sack, so that's also a good reason. I think we're avoiding the very best scene in this entire movie, though. Rick Mayhall's scene. The SAS, which I might be wrong. They're basically the British equivalent of the FBI. 
Because I think MI6 is the British equivalent of the CIA. I always thought they were like the British equivalent to SWAT. Yeah, they're special air service. I I thought they were more SWAT as well. Okay, because I'm I'm thinking back to like Life Force from Toby Hooper, where the SAS was investigating what happened. So I kind of had them more of an an FBI kind of thing. But Rick Mayhall's scene is probably the most British scene in the entire movie. But it's also the funniest. It's just full of madcap, manic, chaotic energy with some really bad taste jokes, most of which land. And the only thing that made it a little less funny is some of the jokes are recycled from the miniseries. So I already knew as soon as they began setting it up, this is where this joke's going because I just watched the miniseries like three days earlier. You usually see like Rick Mayo play like a fop. And this time around, he, he played like a tough guy, but there's still like this foppish foppishness to him. And I, I, I just like, I thought that was like a fun subversion of his like usual type. I mean, there's a lot less things that I enjoy than him just screaming, you bastards. I mean, that is probably one of the best pleasures in life is Rick Mayall calling somebody a bastard. In Rick's scene, other than the, the nudity earlier, all of the fucks are in his scene. He says fuck like eight times in the one scene, and that's all the profanity in the entire movie. I don't know if that was him going off script or if they just said, look, let's earn our R rating right now. When he gets almost all of the lines, too, it feels like it's just him screaming through most of that. Occasionally you get the punch lines from the other people in the group, the other SAS members, but he's the one that's really setting up all of those jokes. And like I said, some of the funniest ones, unfortunately, were recycled from the miniseries. Like, I love the one where the, the guy's got his leg, he was trying to kick a door down, and his leg is stuck in the door. And they're like, all right, get the saw. And the idiots saw the guy's leg off instead of sawing the door open. And he's like, bastards! And it's like they use that same joke in the miniseries. Otherwise, that would have worked really well if I hadn't have already seen it, you know, three days earlier. I kind of felt like that scene went on for way too long. Okay, granted, I liked that they found that the Princess Wendy that they thought was Princess Wendy was actually a wax figure. And when they reveal her arms and legs have been all stretched out, I thought that was pretty good. And I did like that they set up the idea of them having a tiger and Rick yelling at the guy, why are you always bringing this tiger? And then that that's it's more trouble that, than it's worth. That's the way the acrobat is, is murdered or killed. And that's like, okay, that's good. And I didn't mind too, the whole thing of that show that they put on the one that you mentioned earlier and how they hypnotize the three guys in there. And then that is what leads to having the one admiral, think that he's what in a burning house and he's yelling fire 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 and then when they snap in front of his face that he yells fire at the end and that's what causes them to fire all the missiles whoops apocalypse if we're going to compare the endings i love the the ending of the miniseries is way better i think the ending of the movie it doesn't work where i know we haven't got to the miniseries yet but that ends i mean i don't know your age michael but i know mike what you grew up during the whole atomic scare in the eighties, the end of the miniseries is somber and dark. All of a sudden they drop all comedy and the last two minutes are a very dark, somber realization that we just ended the world. Whereas the movie plays it as a gag that we just ended the world. 
Hey, here's a question. Did this precede Threads or did Threads follow? Like the mini, the miniseries, I should say. Threads was 83 or 84. So I think that was after the miniseries. I might be wrong on the year, but I think that was mid to earlier 80s. That was 84. You're right. Okay. So yeah, the miniseries preceded Threads. Same with uh, the, the day after in America would have been after whoops apocalypse but that wouldn't have come to america yet i don't think at that point the miniseries i mean day after was shown in 83 i think i think the funniest thing about that was the advertising no advertisers wanted to advertise after the bombs dropped so it's commercial free after the nukes hit and day after i thought that was just that says so much about the ad industry at the time doesn't it it's still so funny to me that Ford was the one that sponsored the big screening of Schindler's List a few years ago. Just like, please forgive us, please. I know that we were run by a guy that loved Hitler, but come on. The other part that I actually kind of enjoyed was the Rambo Graham. I thought that the guy who was doing Rambo was actually a pretty decent impersonator. I have for you a message here from Mr. Lacrobat. He sent an ultimatum just to tell you where it's at. If the British don't pull out the troops in 84 hours flat, Princess Wendy will be killed. Marv, get on the phone right now. Princess Wendy will be killed, yeah. Her head with lead, it will be filled, yeah. Her royal blood, it will be spilled. If the Brits don't shift their ass. The only other thing that I thought was okay was the whole idea of Peter Cook trying to sell the idea of these umbrellas, these British umbrellas being protection from the bomb and how he goes around and checks to see what political party people are before he will give them the umbrella. That felt very apt for this time as well. Yeah, where he he was like, oh, you voted liberal. Well, too bad for you. Vote conservative next time if you live. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break. And we're going to play some interviews coming up here. First up, we're going to hear from one of the writers of the film, David Renwick. And then after that, we'll hear from the producer of Whoops Apocalypse, the movie, Brian Eastman. And we'll be back with both of those right after these messages. My name is T2756. Would you like to have sex with me now for money? Worst Movies Ever Played is back with three new VHS movies for your ears. Sextipede, you're alive again. How I've missed you. Anything can happen in this actual play RPG podcast, and we mean anything. You didn't think you could go to Texas Instruments without murdering someone, did you? Subscribe to Worst Movies Ever Played wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we are going to hear from David Renwick, the writer of both versions of Whoops Apocalypse, as well as a lot of other things. How did you end up being a writer? How did you get your start? It was something I was just interested in from an early age, I suppose. Um, I used to in real childhood, I used to do my own comic books. I was a great DC Comics fan, a very avid collector of DC Comics, and and I used to draw my own superhero stories and all of that. So it, that was the very beginnings of 
I suppose, creativity. Then I became attracted to comedy, I guess, in my sort of mid to late teens, listening to various shows on the radio and TV shows that were around. This was this sort of the early days of satire, and there was TW3, Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, and then latterly Monty Python, which was a huge, huge influence and kind of seminal effect that had on my writing aspirations. I sent some material into John Cleese at one point, and uh, he wrote me a very nice letter back. So things like that encouraged me to keep writing. I actually began full-time employment on a local newspaper as a journalist. But during that period, I was I was actually contributing odd sketches to uh, very odd sketches to to a topical news program called Weekending on Radio Four over here, BBC program. And it was there that I met Andrew Marshall, who was doing this exactly the same thing. He was I think teacher training college at that point. We decided that we'd got a kind of in a common taste and sense of humour. And just began writing together, really. And that it's kind of moved on from there. Eventually, I decided that journalism wasn't really wasn't the, the career for me. And I um, just sort of jacked that in and decided to have a go at comedy writing full time. So, so that's what I did. How did you eventually make that break into television? Right from the very beginnings, I was getting jokes, just one liners accepted on certain shows. I don't know how familiar you are with all of our comic history on tv here a show called the two ronnies and there was another dave allen was a comedian who accepted sort of little quick sketches on his show it really was just you know one rung up the ladder at a time i used to go into those two ronnies recordings and get my face known and just sort of hang around and establish a personal presence i guess in that environment so that people knew who i was rather than just a faceless name the person who was sending in this material and Eventually, I was just fortunate enough to get more and more one-liners on, then the odd sketch, then uh, then more sketches, uh, until a point where I was actually a commissioned writer on the regular team. And um, so it was it was just building those blocks up, you know, bit by bit. As I say, writing odds and ends for radio with Andrew Andrew Marshall, and we submitted one or two half-hour scripts. Uh, obviously, the early efforts were, were kind of didn't get anywhere, but eventually something did, and. Uh, and then we made that transition in, into TV. We wrote a series for radio called The Burkis Way, which was sort of sub-Python-esque sketches, really. And uh, and then the next project, which was for, for television, was really a spin-off from that. It was The Burkis Way on TV. I suppose this kind of takes us into the topic under discussion, which was End of Part One was the name of that series. It went out in the less than ideal slot of Sunday afternoons, which I think tended to market out as a children's show more than anything. And we were, so, you know, I, it was, it was all part of the, the ITV network system in those days. It was, it was kind of a sort of federal system they had then with different regions in the country producing their own projects and, and, and series and shows. And it was hard to get something as, I suppose experimental and slightly strange as our series broadcast right across the network at a at a prime in a prime time slot. So that's where we ended up, and we decided that after two series, that the next thing we wrote should have a more inescapably adult theme. This was in 1980 when the Soviets had just moved into Afghanistan, so World War Three seemed like not such an unlikely scenario. Bit like now, really. and uh, so that was that was what we went for, and uh, so we did a 
six episode series for London Weekend Television here in in UK, and then a producer called Brian Eastman, who we'd not met before, but some someone arranged a meeting. Uh, I think our agent arranged a meeting with with him about something else, and he said really enjoyed the TV series. Have you ever thought of trying to make a movie on the same subject? And with the naivety of youth, we we took him up on it. He managed to get a bit of finance together. We wrote a script. And of course, you assume, as any <laughs> sensible writer would, that it will never see the light of day. And it took him about two or three years to actually raise the money for that. But in fact, he did. So, and uh, Whoops Apocalypse was the um, was the result. With the TV show Whoops Apocalypse, what was that like? What was that process like for you? We felt we were moving on from sketch comedy bit by bit. Although, if you watch that series, it's still self-evidently has its roots in sketch comedy. The, the scenes are very sketchy most of the time. There is a narrative that goes through from episode to episode. There is a storyline, which we were quite pleased with. But scene by scene, they have a very sketchy kind of feel. Each scene tends to have a sort of comic premise to it, which we milk for all it was worth. And, and a lot of the performances, I think, tend to veer on the sketchy side as well which was less than ideal looking back or even at the time i think we felt that was that was the case it's a strange thing really because we we had some had a great cast i have to say i mean moving on from just the sketch performers who were little known in end of part 1 you know we got some you know very reputable actors and comic actors to take part i mean john cleese for example who was a big buddy of humpy barkley the producer and uh, he managed to persuade him, persuaded him to read a, a script, and he liked it, and he came in to talk about it, and so we got him to play the part of this international terrorist character, Lacrobat. And there were, and there was, there were several other people, like Richard Griffiths, uh, Peter Jones, Jeffrey Palmer, who in in, uh, in this country are really kind of top notch character actors, but proper actors. We were quite pleased that we, that for the president, that we managed to get Barry Morse, who we. We had remembered from his days in The Fugitive, the TV series, still screened over here on one of the rerun channels. So, you know, things like that were really enthusiasts. You know, mixed package, really. I think we sort of learned as we went along. And the trouble is, you're writing for an ITV half hour, which is, as you'll know, in America, in in that half hour format, not much more than two 12-minute chunks of material and and we do tend we tended to overload our shows with a lot of ideas and material and and so the editing process was quite ruthless and you know i mean yeah, the director was editing out breaths you know <laughs> from time to time just to you know to get it squeeze it down to time could seem a bit indigestible at times at least you don't quite have that restriction in a movie you can you know you can let it breathe a little bit more was this the first time you worked with Alexi Sale? Yes, it was. 1980-82 was the actual series when it, when it went out, I think. And that was 1980, as I say, was, the, was really when the alternative comedy movement, as it became known, um, sort of had its birth in our country. So I'd, I'd met Alexi at the comedy store where he was a host uh, for all these alternative acts that were you know, sort of getting an airing in front of this sort of nightclub audience. So I'd met him very briefly there. And then he did a, an appearance on one of the Amnesty International 
concert, Secret Policeman's Ball, I think. And Humphrey went to see that and came back the next day and said, we've got to get this guy into the show. I mean, as it happened, we had a part that was tailor-made for him anyway, this Soviet commissar KGB character. So yes, he was he was one of the regular characters. I mean, not really an actor by training, but he sort of fitted into the mix, as did Rick Mayle, who only had a small kind of cameo role in that TV series. But he was so busy doing the young ones, and as was Alexi, but Rick was writing it as well. So he was, and his time was his calendar was a bit full, so we couldn't get him for any more than that. But um, yes, it was nice to be mixing the the uh, the up and coming comedians with the more traditional people like like please as i say and some others and uh you know so there's quite a bit of diversity in the casting there we even got to work your love of dc into so much of it we did yes because andrew shared that passion and background and those that knew recognized the references were, were probably tickled by the you know jay garrick was one of them who's um you have to to be quite into DC to know that that was the secret identity of the original Flash on in the uh, original Golden Age comics. And I can't remember what they are. There were quite a few of them. There was a reference to Aquaman, I think, in the first minute of the show. Now very familiar to people, but at the time that was quite an obscure reference. Yes, there were quite a lot of those references sprinkled through the, through the, through the show. So how was Whoops Apocalypse, the series, received? It was mixed. As everything is, you know, there were people who absolutely loved it to bits and people who gave it an absolute panning. I mean, it's such a long time ago now, of course, um, we're talking about 40 years um, that I can't, either, either can't remember or, I, or I've subconsciously um, sort of wiped them from my memory. But I probably have got a scrapbook full of cuttings upstairs. It was certainly made an impression, I'll say that much, and it raised our status a bit within the industry in that we were now, whatever you thought of the, the show, writing and you know, working in, in, in adult television, grown-up television. People to this day compare that with the movie which followed, and they, I find that most people who be bothered to make a reference to them tend to, to compare the movie unfavorably with the TV series which is not really how I, my own view, but I'm not quite sure what they base that upon. The two are palpably different, as you would, as you would expect and hope they would be in terms of their, you know, style and treatment, despite having, I mean, we didn't even want to call the movie Whoops Apocalypse for a long time. That was something that was, I don't think we were ever overly mad about the title. It was a, very much a, a makeshift title that we put on it, because originally Whoops Apocalypse was commissioned, the, the TV series was commissioned for the BBC. Um, they turned it down, which is then when we then took it to Humphrey Barclay in ITV, who picked it up. And it was just a title we, we stuck on a piece of paper to just to get it commissioned. And then as ever with these things, the the sort of assonance of the of the words kind of you know, had a certain ring to it. So we, we stuck with it. But when we did the film, we thought, well, we'd kind of like to leave that behind and give it a different title, maybe just give it an identity of its own. But once again, I think one of our favourite titles was MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. But that was registered, we found, to Mad Magazine, who, of course, you knew would never be making a film and never use that title. But because they'd registered it, we couldn't use it. So after a lot of many, many suggestions and backwards and forwards, we ended up with the same title. Well, tell me a little bit more about how the movie comes to be. As I say, it was an idea 
proposed by Brian Eastman, user, and we having not very much else to do at that time, I think thought, well, okay, let's let's give it a shot. We just needed a different premise, really. I mean, we were going to take, we knew we were going to take the basis of the TV series forward, but obviously we wanted to create a completely different story with different characters or mostly different characters, profit from some of the strengths of the TV series and hopefully repair some of the damage from the TV series with a completely new venture. Now, this was 1983, I think, 1982-83, just after the TV series had gone out, as I say, that we began our work on the script. And 82, memorably, was the year of the Falklands crisis when Argentina invaded the Falklands Islands, a British possession, as it was seen. And UK went to war over it. I think we must have been among the few people in the country who didn't share that sort of appetite for belligerence and you know warmongering. But it was the the mood in in, in Britain during that period was was quite astonishing, really, how everyone seemed to, to just snap into this very very natural nationalistic fervor, baying for the blood of these Argentinians, and it was it was. It was quite sickening to observe, really. And I mean, even on the left of the uh, the parties in in government, they they were all kind of supporting this task force that Thatcher was sending down to the Falklands. So, anyways, all of that had had been going on. I mean, it was all over by the time we were writing, but we were. It was very much fresh in our minds. I mean, another facet of that was the um, was was the way the media latched onto it, or particularly the less savoury end of the the media, the, the the tabloid end. We thought, well, that was something we would quite like to satirise within the uh, the storyline. And I mean, within the actual Falklands crisis, we America were, were were you know not really on side as much as you know Thatcher would have liked, would have preferred it to be as we as we would resolved more peacefully. But anyway, that didn't happen. So we decided. American president, rather than being just a, an adult like uh, the Barry Morse character was, should be the should be this kind of the, the voice of reason within this. So operating more as a re, uh, as a sort of a reaction to the insanity that was going on on the other side of the Atlantic. So retaining the idea of a, a British PM who was kind of a bit mad, we, we stuck with that strand. We stuck with the idea of an international terrorist man of a thousand faces, which would give us the the uh, potential of all these sort of strange characters that he would play. And so there was that as a source of comedy. But we would, this time we would have a president who was actually, a, you know, kind of more rational. And uh, at some point the decision was made to make that character female, which was more revolutionary then than it would seem now. But uh, it was, was just after Geraldine Ferraro had been selected as Mondale was at Mondale's running mate. So these things were, were kind of, you know, quite, quite topical. That's how the, you know, the different elements of the, of the story came to, as a slot into place. How involved were you and Andrew when it came to the actual shooting of the film? Well, very. I mean, I was, I think I was at every day of shooting pretty much. There might have been one or two that I missed. And I think and Andrew, I think, was around most of the time as well. I mean, Brian was very keen for us to be very heavily involved. And 
We went through various suggestions for directors beyond, as you know, this the usual um, sort of gestation process of these, these 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 things. British director Ken Russell was was lined up at one point. He was very keen to do it. We had a slightly strange lunch with him one day, and I think it was in the end was a bit of a problem raising finance for on you know on Ken Russell's name. But it would have been interesting to see what he would have done with it. I mean, who knows? There was a director called Jim McBride who um, I think had I think he'd only done this thing Breathless. He later did the Big Easy and the other movies. But I mean, he came over and uh, we had various discussions with him and. For whatever reason, and Terry Hughes was, we went over to uh, the States to, uh, who was, um, I had worked with on this show, The Two Ronnies, subsequently did a lot of TV stuff, Golden Girls and things. We ended up with uh, Tom Busman, I think was, had been recommended by Dick Lester, who was someone else we approached who either wasn't available or passed on the project, but he recommended Tom Busman, who had essentially, who was essentially a commercials director. And so anyway, for can't tell you the exact step-by-step process but by which he was signed up, but that's, he became came on board as the director. And so, yes, that's your question. We were around for all of the casting process. I mean, I went over with Tom to L.A. to try and find someone to play this Lacrobat character, as you would expect, in trying, the, in trying to get the finance together for this film. You know, you wanted a... A release in America to try and you know help pay for it, and in order to get a release in America, it was desirable that there should be a fairly recognisable name or two in in the casting. We didn't get John Cleese on board this time. We originally wanted John Cleese to play the Prime Minister, but although he liked the script and his industrial training films company video arts were going to finance the, the film at one point also we lost john cleese from the from the from the uh from our intended lineup and so the lacrobat part again we had thoughts about that someone like vincent price or barry humphreys didn't you know that didn't happen so that seemed like an ideal casting choice for you know for an for an american and so Tom and I went over and we saw, I think, half a dozen people one day. Um, Kenneth Mars was one of them, who I think was someone that we had considered at one point, Harry Shearer. I think we narrowed it down after the first set of meetings to Harry Shearer and Michael Richards. Whereas, I mean, Harry was, was great. I mean, you know, incredibly talented, funny character. But I think we found he was in a way more cerebral than... Than, than, than wacky, which was kind of how we wanted this character to be. Of course, we hadn't heard. Yet. I mean, Michael Richards was completely unknown to us, but suggested by the casting director as, as someone who was on the up. And for some reason, just, you know, we thought, yeah, I think Michael Richards could, you know, we, we went through a lot of scenes with him in hotel rooms and you know, he just seemed to have the required qualities. So that's how Michael Richards came. You know, this is a few years before Kramer, obviously. I think there was one day when Loretta Swit just happened to be in the country doing something or other, and Brian, his usual resourcefulness, sent sent a script round to her. She liked it, um, anyway. So we got her on board as the um, as our as our president. In the absence of Cleese as the prime minister, a very obvious second choice really was Peter Cook, you know, of exactly the same kind of Cambridge heritage and. Uh, those were our three principles, really. And once we got those in place, we sort of built the rest of the cast around that. And 
as I say, yes, once the shooting started, I think we were in five or six weeks shooting in this country and a couple of weeks shooting in Miami before the American scenes. And so we went over there and uh, we were just uh, breathing down the director's neck all the time and, and equally and sitting in on the editing when we got back. So yes, very much, very much involved in, uh, in all of the, the actual production process. It's incredible, really. You know, I mean, we went into this in casting meetings every day with at Brian's offices and Mary Selway, who's quite a very well-respected casting director who he managed to get on it, would come in one day and say, oh, Ringo Starr wants to be in it. And it's, what? How does he even know about this show? And that true? Is this some myth? But this sort of thing was going on all the time, you know. And uh, yes, we were, were incredible. I mean, we probably, you know, might have, secured some even bigger names that obviously finance dictated who we could and couldn't have to some extent. Yeah, getting someone like Herbert Lom as a, you know, just that um, General Mosquera character was, was quite... Because originally we were planning to make the storyline even closer to the Falklands crisis by having a British colony protector or whatever, overseas territory, whatever it was called still in Belize, in Central America, and with Guatemala, who in, in real life had designs upon Belize and regarded it as rightfully part of their country. I think that's all been sort of settled since since the 80s now. But at the time, there was that was all sort of brewing as well. That was kind of sort of heating up. And it was heating up so much that we were, we were advised to sort of steer clear of it. And so that's why we created our fictional Santa Maya and Maguadora. But yes, to get Herbert Lom as the, the Magradoran president and uh, Ian Richardson as the task force commander. Yeah, I mean, we've done, we've worked with Alexi quite a lot since then. In fact, it was while we were over there just chatting on the beach at, in, in uh, Key Biscayne or wherever it was that we'd, we hatched up the idea of a TV series when we came back, which we, which we subsequently did three series on. So yeah, so we've had quite a close relationship with Alexi that began back then. Ultimately, how was the film received when it came out? I would have to say the same as the TV series. It's hard not to feel wounded by the knocks that you get. Equally, we got a lot of very, very good reaction. It's in my nature to get, you know, if I get three good reviews and one bad review, I'd be more hurt by the bad review than the three good ones. Not that it was in that proportion. I would say it was probably more 50-50. You see, you had... Things like the SAS sequence, which was one very funny scene on the TV series. And we thought this has the potential for quite a nice Keystone Cops type closer, you know, which will maybe could run for 10, 15 minutes to finish the movie off on a high comic note. And we managed to get Rick back to play the, uh, Rick, he didn't play it in the, in the TV series, but we managed to get him to play the SAS commander with all the murder and mayhem that happened. That sequence was almost universally roundly condemned by the critics as the big letdown at the end of the film. It was all too gross. And you go in a theatre and watch it, you know, with with the audiences, and that's where they really came to life. And you know, so it was that kind of trade off. You know, you do you make something that's going to appeal to the critics or to the audience? You know sitting in the movie theatres and ideally you would like to to do both but uh, that was a very clear dividing line it was you know the people tended to really appreciate and laugh at that scene you know out there in the in the country but the critics were very sniffy about it so i you know i don't know it, it's become a bit of a 
I suppose a bit of a curiosity now. I don't know quite why it's now awaiting this Blu-ray release after all this time, but someone's decided it would be a good idea. Did they ask you to participate with the release? A guy came around and did an interview with me for some extras that they were planning on on the, on the disc. So I don't know if that's happened or not. When he got in touch, that was the first I'd heard of the release at all. So, and that's presumably why you're why you're ringing. Actually, it's just a weird coincidence. I've had this on our schedule for a while, so it just is going to kind of work out well, I suppose. And it, it doesn't hurt that the world is in a very difficult situation right now, and it seems very apropos to cover it. Yes, I think I know which I'd prefer. <laughs> but uh, no, you're right. I mean, it, uh, you, you, you know, if you get on go on Twitter, you do find those comments and. You know, as a, as a phrase, it's something you can put in a search and, you know, and, and find people are quoting it. And I mean, a lot of it probably does seem quite prescient. Then it was based upon stuff that was around then. I mean, I suppose not that much changes really in the cycle of um, geopolitical affairs. Being old enough to remember the Cuba crisis, you know, I was only about 11, but I still have vivid memories of the, the mood in the in my parents and family's households at the time, you know, and it was, and of course, having studied it much more in hindsight, you do, you do wonder how, how much closer, you, you know, could you get to, you know, none of us being here today. That's a fairly chilling prospect. But anyway. You did so much comedy over the years, and then you kind of switched gears to work on Poirot, and then years after that, Jonathan Creek. What was that like moving from comedy into more of a mystery? Going back to my interests and my roots, along with the superhero comics, Sherlock Holmes was a big influence, I suppose. I used to devour all those stories. I had so I had that interest right at the back of my from those days. But um, Poirot came about again just because that was produced also by an Eastman, um, and it just rang me up and asked me if I fancied writing one or two. So that's that's how that happened. And I don't know how, I mean, Jonathan Creek was still, still had a lot of comedy in it and uh, made through the BBC comedy department. I guess that love of mysteries and puzzles was the back of it. The producer of the show that I was working on called One Foot in the Grave, which is a situation comedy, and I would sit down and, you know, now and again and say, wouldn't it be nice? to make a British Columbo, which, you know, which I was a huge fan because it was about character and about the puzzles and working things out and working clues out rather than about car chases and exploding buildings and, you know, macho men and all this business. That was the sort of genesis of it, that um, a British Columbo, a, an anti-hero, was determined he shouldn't be a sort of kind of classic sort of superhero type detective but something more in the destry rides again kind of mold. Someone who had this amazing aptitude, but was, you know, very low key, very laid back, unassuming and apparently very harmless, you know, someone you wouldn't expect to be able to unravel all these things. And that was the kind of starting point. And I think it was Andrew at one point had introduced me to some novels by John Dixon Carr, who was uh, one of the principal golden age of detection <clears throat> authors used to a master of the locked room puzzle and it just occurred to me that rather than this was just a man who could solve seem seemingly difficult 
puzzles and murders, murder stories, that it was someone who can deal with impossible crimes. Then the idea of making him a magician's assistant sort of kind of flowed naturally from that because it seemed to qualify him for the job perfectly and it just sort of the two things knitted together very neatly and so that's how the, and I'd always another thing I'd always had this interest in magic I don't know where the, the sort of the confluence of magic and comedy come together but I, you know people like Woody Allen and Steve Martin you know have this uh, famously you know, fast, famous fascination for comedy, uh, for uh, for magic, along with their, you know, their comic roots, and it was uh, so. All of those things blended together. I used to go and watch the, the Magic Circle Festival when I was, you know, in my early teens. When I was like twelve or thirteen, you know, I used to go and see those shows in London. And a big fan of magic shows. So not ever being a practicing magician or anything myself, but it, it was all part of. Uh, in sort of my upbringing, and um, so all of these elements just seemed to to come together quite quite well. But we had to cast somebody in that who you know fulfilled those qualities in a way who didn't seem to be a bit of a sort of smart ass character who was you know who was almost embarrassed by his skills. And we went through a few. I mean, Hugh Laurie was going to play that part originally, among many others, but then he stepped down in the end because he couldn't find a way into the character. Maybe just as well, or house would never have happened. And, you know, we in the end stumbled upon Alan, who was not really known as an actor. He was a, mainly a stand-up, but turned out to be a very, very good actor in the role. And so, yeah, so we never really left the comedy, my my you know my work in comedy behind. I tried to make all the humorous moments in the show as funny as possible. Rather than you know just tongue in cheek or just slightly mildly amusing, you just try or try to get some real, but you know to make the comedy as funny really as any comedy I would have introduced into One Foot in the Grave, alongside all of the darker mystery elements. So trying to get the two to sort of work in tandem. Now, if memory serves me right, you had a novel out last year. Are you currently working on another one? No, no, <laughs> that was that was a little bit of a kind of dip into the unknown. I mean, I wrote one novelization of my TV series, One Foot in the Grave, in 1992, so hard on the heels of that, 30, 30 years later or whatever, I thought, because I'm, I'm basically retired now from writing, but I thought I'd just have a go at another one. This is probably about three three years ago I embarked upon that and then eventually managed to get a publisher to, um, to put it into print, as you say, last year. But I'm, no, I think, I mean, it's, I find writing, I always have done incredibly hard, and I was sort of uh, counterintuitive to retirement, really, to sort of put yourself through all that agony again every day. It's much nicer and more relaxing not to have to do it. I think. <laughs> Leave that to the new generations of writers. Mr. Renway, thank you so much for your time. This was great talking with you. Oh, and not at all. And good luck with it. And I'm very flattered you should uh, have um, been interested. It is time to hear from Brian Eastman, the producer of Whoops Apocalypse, as well as many, many other titles. How did you get your start in the business? How did you become a producer? I used to work in the classical music business. Uh, um, when I left college, uh, 
Um, I worked with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra as a concert manager. And then I moved over to the British Council, which at that time did a lot of promoting the British arts all over the world. And my job was to take various musical ensembles uh, um, on tours around the world. And the first film I made was a documentary about one of those tours. I made several documentaries on on art subjects. And then it was pre-Channel 4. I'm talking about sort of late 70s, early 80s in Britain. So you could still make short films for the cinema. And we made two or three of those. And we made some commercials. And then Channel 4 came along and they only wanted to use independent producers. And there weren't so many of them at that stage. And we were one of the few established ones. Lots of others started up shortly after that. And that's what really got us going. We started making dramas. We'd done drama for um, the short films and we did some uh, for Channel 4 and then built it up from there. And how did Whoops Apocalypse come to you? Well, it was me being enthusiastic about the original television series. Uh, I thought uh, that that was great. And uh, you know, because it was one extended story, I thought it would make a very good movie. So uh, I contacted Andrew and David and uh, we started to talk about it. As you may know, although the, the format, shall we say, for the movie is very similar to the format for the television series, the actual storyline is very, very different. And they developed this new storyline specifically for the movie. And uh, we moved it forward from there. How did the project come together? How did you actually move that forward? Because it seems very ambitious. <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, I don't know whether it's true to say there were fewer opportunities to make movies than there are now. I dare say if you talk to contemporary producers, they'll tell you, tell you that in Britain there are quite only a few opportunities. Uh, there didn't seem to be a lot of ways forward. I can't remember where we showed it first, maybe to Rank. That was a big production house uh, uh, and distributor in Britain at the time. I remember people who were interested in the film were very concerned about who the director would be, um, you know, a, a, a natural thing, of course. One of the first directors, well, I think the first director we approached was actually Ken Russell, um, which unfortunately didn't go down well with potential financiers, which I think was a bit mean. Ken, of course, had had you know, a very big career in the 60s, 70s, but by the mid-80s, he wasn't quite so attractive to financiers. I think also one of the problems with Ken was that he had a lot of health issues and I think it was hard to get insurance on him. We had several meetings with him. I liked him very much, but he was quite off the wall with his ideas. And I think when we had trouble getting the money on him, uh, we were actually a little bit relieved in the end not to do it with him. I think it might have gone quite sideways um, with him. I mean, maybe that wouldn't have been bad. I don't know. Uh, but I suspect he was a bit uncontrollable. And uh, we then moved on to another director, a man called Jim McBride, who had done a film called Breathless with Richard Gere, um, which I liked very much, which was based on the, the Jean-Luc Godard French original. It was perhaps a strange idea because uh, it wasn't particularly comedic breathless. And, and I think Jim did have a bit of a, a comedic background. He came to London and we had several sessions with him. I liked him very much. Uh, I think David and Andrew did as well. Anyway, that didn't work out. And then I think things took a bit of a twist because um, 
we got interest from ITC, the old Lou Grade company, which was still making films, uh, despite having tried to make Raise the Titanic, which, of course, Lou famously said it would have been cheaper to uh, lower the Atlantic. But they were still putting money into films, but they had a very, very good script development person called Deborah Allenson, who was uh, our age. I think it became an age thing, really. Older executives didn't quite get it, but Deborah really did. Um, and she persuaded her boss uh, uh, that we they should finance the film. And I think they, in effect, gave us the go-ahead before we had selected a director. I can't remember. The two probably went hand in hand. But that, the reason they wanted to make it was primarily because they loved the script and they loved the casting idea. And at that stage, there were quite a lot of commercials directors who were making movies and doing uh, so very successfully. I mean, the starting time for Ridley Scott and Alan Parker and all of that. Tom Busman was a very successful director of comedic commercials in the UK. Uh, that's what his reputation was for. And uh, he was very keen on the script as well. So we suggested Tom to ITC and that, that then got us going. The UK was famous for the advertisements. I mean, you guys were sweeping the, what was it, the Clio Awards almost every single year. And he certainly had got a bunch of those uh, advertising industry awards. So what were some of the biggest challenges of putting together Whoops Apocalypse? Well, as you mentioned earlier, it is very adventurous in its scale. Actually, looking back, I'm very surprised we did it to the scale that we did do it on, on the budget that was available. It was a pretty early project for me and for, for David and Andrew. So uh, naivety probably played an important part here. And we just kept pushing forward and uh, trying to find a way of doing these things. Even though there are a lot of locations and a lot of cast, we didn't shoot it on a very big scale. A lot of it is quite tightly shot. You know, that was partly due to uh, cost reasons and also time reasons. We didn't have a very long schedule. We had to keep things a bit tight just to keep it moving. But we did shoot quite a lot in Miami. I think we were there for two or three weeks of the shooting. I can't remember how the breakdown was. It was probably four weeks in Britain and three weeks in America. But we only took the British heads of department to America. We, we used a Florida crew. You know, which is not a, a cheap way of doing things, but at least you're not flying everybody uh, across the Atlantic. You know, when you look at some of those American scenes, uh, you know, the funeral of uh, uh, President Burlap with the circus parade and all of that sort of thing, uh, that's on a big scale. The Richard Nixon scene uh, in the um, the rock breaking prison, all of that's on a quite quite a big scale. Uh, and the same in Britain. Uh, uh, when you look back at the House of Commons scene, there's a lot of people there in, in quite a big set. These days, if you there is, there's a standard House of Commons set that's available, and it's tiny. They only have a few people in there whenever they shoot a, 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 a Houses of Parliament scene. And, of course, we were able to attract very, very good actors, and we must have paid them reasonably. I don't think we were asking everybody to do favours. I mean, I'm sure we didn't pay huge amounts, but, uh, you know, having... Peter Cook and, and uh, Loretta Swit and Rick Mayle and, and Michael Richards before his Seinfeld days and uh, Richard Wilson and John Sessions and Ian Richardson. I mean, they were all very, very good actors who uh, uh, came and took part. So I think that helped the film tremendously that we had such good people in it. 
the caliber of actors is just remarkable. I, I was very happy to see Herbert Long. I don't think that he gets nearly as much appreciation as he should. Yes, I think that's right. And I um, I don't know how much work Herbert did after Whoops Apocalypse. There probably were some Pink Panthers after uh, Whoops Apocalypse. can't remember the timeline of it all. I think all of his material was shot in America, was it? I remember picking him up from uh, Miami Airport and taking him to the hotel. Uh, perhaps we shot a bit with him in Britain. I can't remember. Uh, he was a very, very nice man. Uh, his son was a, a lawyer in the movie business, so I knew him as well, having worked with him. So uh, it became quite friendly with Herbert, and that was great. And, of course, with Peter Cook, who shot both in Britain and in America. He had scenes in the States as well. I remember staying in the hotel with Peter, and uh, he was due to go on one of the breakfast TV shows, but, of course, he was a, a well-known figure in America. But that the morning he was due on was the morning that one of the Apollo missions uh, imploded on takeoff and, and the crew were all lost. And uh, we were in Florida, so, you know, we could kind of see what was going on up in the sky. It was it was really horrible. Peter was very distressed about that and, and never did appear on the breakfast show because of the news overtook him there. I think his performance is one of the best things in the show. He he told us he was going to base it on the British Prime Minister, Anthony Eden. And indeed, he does bear a resemblance. Uh, uh, but of course, his storyline bears a resemblance to what's going on in, in Britain today. I mean, a lot of people think that the Peter Cook character can be classed as mad. Whether you can class Boris Johnson as mad, I don't know. You know, certainly Boris is fighting off attempts to remove him from office, which is what Peter Cook does in the movie. Peter Cook also has this rather unusual uh, method of uh, uh, solving the unemployment issue by pushing employed people off the cliff. You might say that Boris had done the same uh, by removing us from Europe and uh, all the people who were employed in Britain from Europe have all gone home and... Uh, but unfortunately, their places have not been taken by British people. Uh, so we have a, an unemployment problem created by that. So I think David and Andrew did a, a very good job of, of imagining what a crazy British prime minister would be like. And uh, it seems that that's probably what we're suffering from at the moment. Have the crucifixion started? <laughs> Certainly the sacrifices have started, haven't they? People leaving their jobs and or being told to leave their jobs uh, so that Boris can continue. We were very keen to cast as one of those uh, British ministers who was going to be crucified um, an actor called Ian Wallace, who we'd worked with on other things. He was an older actor with a very, very gentle personality. And he came in to talk to us about it. And uh, he didn't really know anything about the role. Uh, we explained, well, you're playing this minister. And uh, unfortunately, the prime minister thinks that you've uh, been betraying him. So uh, you are to be crucified. And I remember his face falling and thinking, me crucified? Surely not. And he said, uh, I think I better consult my doctor about this before I accept the role. And we said, well, of course, you won't really be crucified, but you will be tied to a crucifix and it will be raised into shot. Um, anyway, he called me a day or two later and he said, I'm really sorry, but I have consulted my doctor. He doesn't think I should be crucified. So I to take the role. I think uh, we replaced him with a, an even more senior actor called Richard Murdoch, who, whose doctor apparently said, oh, it was perfectly OK to be crucified. I'd love to be a fly on the wall to hear that conversation with the doctor. 
And of course, that was um, when we first worked with Richard Wilson. Uh, he was another minister who uh, got into trouble. David Renwick, in particular, then used him in his uh, television series One Foot in the Grave, which was a, a big success uh, over in Britain and indeed was the uh, source material for the second version of The Cosby Show. So uh, um, Richard played a very big part in our lives. What was that experience like for you personally, making this movie, and especially this international production, first time you're making a feature? Oh, it was a very good feeling about it. Uh, you know, we loved the material. We loved what we were trying to do. We thought there was a point to it as well. It wasn't just for fun. It was trying to point out how global situations can escalate for no good reason, and terrible things can happen from as a result of that. As I say, naivety probably did play a, a good part in it in that somehow I felt that I could do what we needed to do with the money that we had available. And, of course, you know, if necessary, that makes you uh, make, do and mend, doesn't it? You find ways to uh, uh, get something done for not too much money. But I do remember, you know, one of the things we thought, oh, we can shoot cheaply were the, the newsroom scenes. Uh, the various sequences where we move the plot on courtesy of a newsreader. So we just shot a very simple newsroom backdrop with, uh, in fact, the same actor who'd done it in the TV series. But when we put the movie together, these newsroom scenes look very, very, well, the word we use is pony, um, i.e. cheap. And, and uh, it's, they felt out of place with the film, but they did have quite a bit of scale to it. And somehow uh, there was enough money left in the budget to reshoot all of those newsroom scenes. And, and uh, um, we used a different actor for the newsreader and gave him a big newsroom set and, and did quite a lot of post-production on it as well to make it look what, like newscasts looked at that time. And that, that did improve them a lot. I, I suspect we probably changed some of the material in it as well. Um, even at, at the end of the shoot, there was some dregs left in the budget to, to do a bit of a reshoot, which was, was really worthwhile. We had money to commission a song at the end as well. Uh, John Otway, who was a, a very unusual singer in Britain, had had only one hit really, but uh, he was a very anarchic figure. He was very, very good on stage. He was sort of part of the punk movement, but punk with comedy. I liked that song very, very much. I thought he did it very well. And, uh, you know, that just gave an extra flavor at the end. Uh, and we used uh, the instrumental uh, part of the song during the movie as well. Uh, it was a big learning curve for me as a producer, definitely. But I didn't feel overawed by the experience. Uh, um, just as everything kept being possible, we just kept on going, really. Ultimately, how was the film received? I don't really think you could say it was particularly well received. I was thinking about this this morning. Why would we say it was not a success? I mean, success is measured in two ways, obviously, box office success and uh, uh, reputation through the decades. And we didn't have box office success. And I don't know that the film has much of a reputation. When I look look back on it, I do think it's, it's successful. Uh, I mean, of course, you think about things you might have done another way. But perhaps we were delving into what turned out to be a very difficult field, which is movies that are political comedies. I was trying to think about what other movies you can put into that category. 
particularly, you know, in the 80s when we were making it. There aren't so many really, are there? I could think of the Kevin Klein movie, Dave, which, uh, well, I think that's a 90s movie. Uh, I suppose you can go back to Dr. Strangelove. We've had more recently in the loop, the, the Armando Inucci films uh, in the loop and the Death of Stalin. There was a film more around our time called Wag the Dog, wasn't there, that was... Uh, but it's it's not a long list. If you're looking at movies by genre, political comedy uh, is not a, a, a very long list, and and nor are they very high up the box office successes, uh, whatever you might deem to be the the very best political comedy. So it may be that whilst we like to laugh at world events and politicians on television. Maybe we don't really like seeing that on the big screen quite so much. I might also convince myself perhaps the film was a bit of a head of its time, but it had been a success as a TV series. Well, perhaps that proves my point, that people were willing to be amused by politics on television but didn't really want to pay money at the box office for it. Now, in Britain... Several political comedies over the years. Uh, Spitting Image is our main one, um, which is using puppets, but it is all uh, making fun of, of politicians. Uh, and we have a, a, a news sort of game show called Have I Got News For You? It's been running for 30 odd years now that we all like very much, but you don't see it quite so much in movies. So perhaps just as a genre, we were never going to be a, a big financial success. A few years after Wolf's Apocalypse, you produced one called The Misadventures of Mr. Wilt. What was that like for you? Because we're actually talking about morons from outer space later on this month. That was good as well. Um, uh, the Wilt novels are by uh, an English author called Tom Sharp, and he has two or three of those. I mean, he's passed away now, Tom, but uh, and I had made two others of his, not, not in the Wilt series, but... Uh, um, I'd made on television. I'd made one called Blot on the Landscape, which uh, um, was about local politics. So again, that was decidedly political. And then I made one called Porterhouse Blue, which was about life in Cambridge College. Uh, Tom's books were quite extreme and, and you know, attracted a lot of interest. Uh, he wrote a couple about the apartheid era in South Africa, based on his experiences of working there, and they were very, very extreme. So having done the two TVs, uh, it looked like it was okay to, to try and make a movie of Wilt. The same writers as the Whoops of Apocalypse writers, Andrew Marshall and David Ramick, did the script for it. Very different. It was it didn't have a political element at all, but you know, it was quite an extreme story about a man being accused of murder when he had, in fact, been trying to get rid of a blow-up woman. Mel and Griff uh, were excellent in it, really very, very good. And Michael Tuckman, who directed it, did a very good job. And that that was a pretty popular movie in, in Britain, uh, although you don't see it uh, uh, repeated very much these days. I don't know quite why, but because uh, Mel and Griff are still well-known figures. Uh. I'm just amazed to see how many different things that you were involved in, especially big landmark stuff like I still hear people talk about traffic to this day. Yes, I was lucky enough to get a, a, quite a, a variety of projects off the ground. It, were, it was a pretty fertile period for British independent producers. Uh, there weren't the number of outlets there are today, but then there weren't the number of independent producers vying for those uh, slots. Um, but uh, you know, I think we did achieve quite a good reputation for the things we did. Uh, 
I think early on, I wanted to concentrate on comedy, but a variety of circumstances led me into more dramatic things. And uh, in the end, it was just a balance between comedic work and, and straight drama work. The, the Traffic television series, which became the Traffic movie that Steven Soderbergh directed, was based on personal incidents that me and my family had experienced. And then Simon Moore, who wrote it, uh, did a lot of research into how the drug trade was working at that stage. And uh, again, that was another example of perhaps naivety. We wrote it set in Britain and in Germany and in Pakistan. And we just had your average television budget. So how, how the heck were we going to get all that done? But somehow we did. It was very, very well directed. I mean, the scripts were really excellent. Uh, it was one of those things where Simon wrote all six scripts at one in one go. It was like a great big movie, really, as indeed the movie turned out to be. When he handed them in to me, I had very, very few comments about it. And when we took them over to Channel 4, they thought they were just great. It, it was a real sort of fantastic burst of energy on Simon's part that, that, that created it. You know, we were able to get into Germany and eventually get into Pakistan to shoot it, which gave it all the authenticity. And the running the three storylines, which were apparently unconnected, um, and just cutting from one to another, that was quite adventurous in those days. I mean, it uh, happens a great deal now. And I think that bold storytelling uh, uh, attracted the audience too. You'll be happy to know that uh, my wife and I have been slowly making our way through all of the Poirot series. Thank you very much. Yes, well, that uh, covered about 20 years of my life uh, on and off amongst all the other things that uh, we were doing at the time. Um, I didn't see it through to the end. Uh, uh, I left in, in the early 2000s and they made some, uh, finished off the series after I left. But uh, um, no, it was very, very satisfying doing all of that. Again, it was how to add to uh, the original concept. So we had, you know, the wonderful Agatha Christie stories and we had David Suchet playing the role, but then how to give it a visual flair as well and concentrating on 30s modern architecture and, and the uh, the look and, and the costumes and the props all coming from that 30s modern era, which people, I guess, knew about but hadn't seen so much on television. It gave it a very, very stylish look, which... Uh, you know, just accompanied the stories of David's characterization very well. Mr. Eastman, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a pleasure talking with you. And you, Mike. Thanks very much, and uh, good luck with the show. Right, we are back and we are talking about Whoops Apocalypse. So let's sh shift gears a little bit and talk about the TV series, the miniseries. Some of these British series are so quick. And this one, what was it? Six parts and it all cuts together. You can see it on YouTube right now. And it's two hours and what, 12 minutes long, I think. So it flows pretty good. Because I've read it's like two hours, 37 minutes. So I think that one has footage but i have no idea because that's the only version i've ever seen that michael probably cuts out all the recaps at the beginning of each oh, okay, of each episodic sense. segment so you can probably lose 10 to 12 minutes because 
Remember, after we see the apocalyptic landscape and the woman holding the mushroom stuff, which is a nice twist at the end of that one, there's always those newspaper recaps. I'm going to guess the YouTube version probably cuts all those out for brevity and just not to get repetitive. Okay, that makes sense. That makes complete sense. Yeah. I really like the timeline that this series has and that they have a countdown throughout this entire thing where we'll have these title cards of like five weeks before, four weeks, and then, you know, the final week and then the final day. I thought that was a really clever way of putting this together. This one, it really skewers everybody. This one concentrates much more on the U.S., British, Soviet, and then the Middle Eastern part of it. This is just a few years after the Shah of Iran was deposed. So this really concentrates on the Shah and the Ayatollah Khomeini. So it's really playing into that and the power struggle that was happening with the Middle East. They go to town on all of the political leaders. The Shah might get off easiest, but everybody else Barry Morse as the president of the United States. Johnny Cyclops. Oh, my God. He is such a breath of fresh air in this. He was great. And I really appreciated him. Um, Just him in his role being the nincompoop, but then also being led by the nose by the deacon. I mean, it's American politics, the way that we have this religious figure in the White House telling the president basically what to do. Obviously, Johnny Cyclops was skewering Ronald Reagan. And I'm just because, you know, he was a former actor and they bring that up all the time. Although he was an actor in silent films, according to this, which is a little weird because that comes into play later. I'm just so glad they didn't do a Ronald Reagan impersonation. That's what I was afraid of. I was like, oh, just I we don't need the Reagan impersonation. Use his history. Fine. Johnny Cyclops was a breath of fresh air because he works quite well. And I think, you, Mike, you talked about skewering everybody. I agree with that, but it's a very British sensibility of what American politics are. And I think that is somewhat funny because I think if you had an American satirist doing the same thing, the American politics would have come off a lot different. It's a very British view of American politics. I don't know if you guys know this. There was a, a tie-in uh, book for the series, and it, it sort of expanded on a lot of things. I know in, in that they had uh, it was it was made to look like a fake newspaper, and there was actually uh, a part in it that showed like Johnny Cyclops's filmography. What's interesting about it is they ba- basically he's Johnny Weissmuller, and like every m- movie he made was like a Tarzan type movie. They kind of hint at that in in the miniseries a little bit, yeah it's really good because there's like everything's expanded. It's not just like a rehash of the show. There's like added details to it. It's very interesting. And I, I got to say that um, uh, Morse, he's doing kind of what Anthony Hopkins did in um, uh, Nixon, where it's not, he's not doing, you know, like a rich little impression of like Ronald Reagan. He, it's like what he's doing is very nuanced because it still reads as Ronald Reagan without being aggressively Ronald Reagan. Like he's not doing will, but there's like a dithering quality to him where it just it's still like Reagan's ever present, but it's not just rubbing your face and it's Reaganness, so to speak. Right. He's not shoveling handfuls of jelly beans into his mouth. 
when you have the Johnny Cyclops character, kind of like the Loretta Swit character in the movie, although he's completely unaware of everything, he's the 100% straight man. He's the one who's reacting to all of the nonsense going around. Like somebody was being crucified outside the window of the of the Oval Office. And he goes, isn't it a little early to be putting up the Easter decorations? He doesn't know what's going on, but it's not, or he's not playing it like it's wacky. Well, I don't think that too many people are playing it completely over the top in this one, which I appreciated that it feels... Alexi Sale is pretty over the top in well, this one. <laughs> but Alexi Sale is usually pretty over the top. And of course, he's basically doing his whole... Russian shtick in this. And I did like him coming in and saying, you know, he's so-and-so Schultzenitskin, no relation. I don't know. I, I enjoyed him in both of these, but I, I've always been a fan of Alexi Sale. Just, you know, him showing up again as a landlord and the young ones. He was always one of the best parts. I love Peter Jones in this, uh, who played um, uh, the the British PM. I think it was, P- am I right on this, Peter Jones? Is that the name? Yeah, Kevin Pork, his name was, yeah. I love what he's doing in that, where he's playing crazy very sensibly. It's so perfectly underplayed. And another thing I want to point out, Josh, are you a big comic guy? Or Yeah, I, 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 the newscaster is Jay Garrick, the That's Golden right. Age Flash. That's right. Yeah, you got it. And there's uh, references to Earth 2, Dr. Destiny. They actually get Kryptonite, Green Lantern, Hawkman. Yeah. Crypto the dog has a scene. I mean, there's, um, God, and they actually get the origins for like Green Lantern and Hawkman. It's Hawkman's a little off, but they're really fucking close. And nowadays that's not interesting. But in 82, that was, that was, in, that was insanely nerdy to do in 82. Yeah, that just was unheard of, especially in the UK. Yeah. I, I messaged Mike as I was watching these. I'm like, Man, there are so many DC Comics references in this, and they aren't bad DC Comics references either. Okay, the costumes at the end when they're all in the asylum, we're spoiling the whole thing. They're crazy. Are pretty decent for the budget and the time that they had for live action, honestly. that's That still impresses me, the, the deep DC Comics cuts. I did like how he had crypto and then he takes crypto for a walk and basically throws the dog out the window when they think that maybe he really is Superman. When he sets the piece of paper on fire uh, with his uh, eye lasers, I was like, okay, this works. But yeah, he's completely unhinged, which again, it's a different kind of crazy than Peter Cook is going to play in the movie. But I kind of like this crazy a little bit better, especially because he's just like, well, if they shoot missiles at us, I can just use my super strength and move Britain right out of the way. There's also the fact that they play his age totally differently between the miniseries and the movie. In the movie, they're just like, we got to get rid of this guy. In the miniseries, they're starting to buy into it. Like, one of the the guy is like trying to stop him with kryptonite and stuff. And the other guy's like, will you stop it? I do like how Peter Cook will, I mean, I guess there's a lot of crucifixion between both of these movies, uh, both of these uh, versions of Whoops Apocalypse, because rather than openly get back at his advisors in the movie version for (laughs) hiring the CIA to come in and murder him, rather than just saying, get rid of these guys, he ends up going on TV and saying that they volunteered to be crucified in public. Yeah, in public, and they just, that's his way of getting rid of all of his political rivals. Did anyone recognize 
Jay Gordon Lee standing in the miniseries? That's Baby Herman, Lou Hirsch. I was surprised when Tony Jay showed up for a one episode walk on. I mean, that part could have been played by anybody, but I immediately was like, wait, I know that voice. That's Tony Jay. And he's the one who hires John Cleese. Yeah, John Cleese is lacrobat in this one. So different. They show a lot of his different disguises through photographs, which I thought was pretty clever. And then he vouches for himself as a different character, which I also appreciated that he is there as lacrobat vouching for lacrobat that you should hire this guy. And then seeing all of those different characters that he's doing. And to your point from earlier, Josh, the whole thing of him stealing this quirk bomb, uh, formerly known as the uh, Johnny Cyclops bomb named after the president, Johnny Cyclops, he is much more dangerous than the Michael Richards lacrobat and much more clever. I like how he disguises the bomb. I mean, it's weird that they have it's a giant black cock. Well, it's so weird that they have the giant cock on the, the truck that Michael Richards is driving and it's not a bomb. It's just a giant cock. And then in this one, it's, yeah, he's disguised the bomb as a giant cock that he's driving around. And the, the cop's so offended about this big penis on his car and the way that he then puts it inside of a huge block of ice and then eventually replaces the bomb with this guy who is mouthing off to him. And then you think that it's inside of the coffin of the very, very, okay. Remember how I said they played the gay stuff pretty well and respectful in the movie? Not so much in the miniseries. The very, very gay, almost flamboyantly predatory U.S. military commander. Inside of the coffin are two little people, and I could swear that one of the little people is Deep Roy, but it's uncredited, I think, because he doesn't have any sort of lines. Well, I think he was based in England around that time. He did like a few James Bond knockoffs, I think, in the late 70s, early 80s. So he could have been him. I mean, it would have made sense with the timeline and that who else are you going to hire? You're going to hire Cousin It. There's not a lot of them in that in that genre, you know? Right. There were all of the time bandits still around, but I, these guys were definitely darker complected. There's a lot more mean spirited humor. I, I mean, I won't say the racial slurs. But there were two racial slur, a racial slur and a gay slur that were used very offhandedly and flippantly that took me a little off guard. I was like, whoa, okay then. There's one that's like a headline. Rick Mayhall is a country singer who's trying to make a song to make Johnny Cyclops look good. And at one point, one of the lines is he even gave a blank boy a ride in his car once. And I went, oh, Jesus. And then the other one was the CIA guy where they were going to drop Malaysian hookers onto the base. And he said, in case there's a couple of poofs, we have a head on standby. That's right. And it was like, ooh. I guess I'm thinking maybe of the movie because there's one that had a headline that said something like Dago's something or other. Italian people are still okay to make fun of, right? We're okay with that. We're not going to get canceled or anything because Italians are... There's a lot of really mean-spirited jokes in the miniseries, some of which, yeah, I'm a bad person. I laughed at some of them, but they just come across as very early 80s, it's okay to pick on this group of people kind of jokes. When you mentioned like the mean-spirited comedy of that, 
that's pretty much characterizes this period of like uh, Marshall and Renwick. I don't know if you guys know about this. They did a show called End of Part One. It's basically a Coronation Street parody that also functions as a Monty Python ripoff. The show makes brutally picks apart other British shows of the era, just like sort of the, the pop culture of the time. And it's full of like that sort of like absurd, uh, sharp humor. And th- they continued it. Uh, I mean, they eventually they did a very dark series called One Foot in the Grave um, with Peter Cook's aid and Whoops Apocalypse uh, wound up starring in it. And their career is just full of just like dark, weird stuff like that. Pretty much this is you get like a sampling of that in uh, Whoops Apocalypse. It, this is this is it, it, why I'm a huge fan. To me, they're like the British uh, Algina Mike Reese. You know, they started out doing Johnny Carson stuff with like the two Ronnies and Little and Large. And they just went when they left. They did all kinds of like weird, almost alternative stuff. Thank you for indulging. I, that was again, this is something I just needed to get out of my system. And now that that's out, just please just, you know, go ahead with the show. When it comes to the miniseries, and I, I don't know how you guys felt about it. I, I watched each part. I had each six episode thing, so I didn't watch the edited version. And each episode grew the foreboding of what was coming. As Mike White pointed out, like the, the title cards telling us how close we are to last day. But it just kept getting more and more oppressive while they're still making goofy jokes. The tone is really hard to describe if you haven't seen it. Does that make any sense? I think that's fair. Yeah. There's a good match between like uh, really like dark situations and really almost surreal comedy, but it, it heightens, as you said, it heightens. It's tough for Americans to get British comedy if they haven't seen it before, because this is super, super British. That whole idea of the cynicism and the darkness and the humor. And one thing that I like more about the, the miniseries is that the jokes come fast and furious. So even when you get those moments that you're talking about where, you know, they are dropping some slurs. It's just like, don't worry, wait a second. There'll be another joke coming any minute now. They just push through these so quickly. The opening sequence of each episode of the miniseries sets a very dark, foreboding tone. It's it's this apocalyptic, very video effect, but a very honestly effective apocalyptic sky and then the camera rolls over a destroyed city and then you see a woman in like burnt up clothing trying to sell mushrooms that says like you know own your own mushroom or something like that and it and it's got like this very somber music it really sets an effective tone and then they come out with wacky jokes so it shouldn't work. In all honesty, Mike's, you guys both are students of cinema. That tone shift shouldn't work, but it weirdly does, doesn't it? I have to say that I didn't realize that that was a woman at the beginning. I thought it was like Malcolm McLaren. I, I realized it was a woman, and we get actually a payoff for that in the very last shot of the miniseries. There's a creepy payoff to that. Oh, boy. Yeah, there is. So we should probably spoil it, uh, where we go around President Johnny Cyclops' desk and see a photo of he and his wife, and his wife is the one that we've seen in all of these episodes. She's the one that's selling those mushrooms. It's very effective, and like I said, for some reason, this one just drops all comedy for the last two minutes of episode six, 
and it just ends on a dark, dark note. Like, I'm going to change to a different movie for just a second. Have either of you seen the Canadian movie from 1984 called Countdown to Looking Glass? I have, but it's been a while. I think in a special bulletin, which is like a TV broadcast of the end of the world, but I have seen Countdown to Looking Glass. It's just been a while. The last five minutes of Countdown to Looking Glass, if you grew up in that 80s era, it still sets my hair on end. It's so creepy. And maybe you can't get it for the listeners if you didn't grow up in that era. But the ending of Whoops Apocalypse gets to that same eerie nightmare quality. We just had mind control from the Russians who have a cloning facility, apparently. That's one running gag I liked. The Russian... I don't know if he's supposed to be the premier or just the prime minister or whatever. He constantly dies and they immediately replace him with the same actor again and again and again. And, but that actor doesn't remember he's already met other people. Ah, this is the first time we have met. Ah, comrade. Uh, We've met 247 times. Da, da. You're earlier talking about how like Michael Richards was a downgrade from um, John Cleese. I really wish they brought Richard Griffiths back for the movie. That movie needed him. I, they do nothing with Herbert Lom. Herbert Lom is, I don't and it's funny, they, I guess they considered him a name, but, but I mean, why not just swap out Herbert Lom with Richard Griffiths? I think that's all, that's I a mean, better movie right there. And yeah, he plays that role so well. And just all those weird things where he's got the chip in his brain and all these things and how they can now listen into the president when he's talking that whole thing too with the um the parrot and how they repeat the entire message to the parrot and then the final line is please eat me (laughs) (laughs) as they're tuning the cia guys nipple so they can hear the president on that because why not right it just works so much better. All of these jokes work so much better. The whole thing of the innocent American couple who abroad and they get arrested as being spies, but then plot twist, they actually are spies that the guy's got the fake leg with all of the things in it. I mean, it just, it works so much better. And then they die. They get killed by their own rescue mission. It's wonderful. I would say if I had one thing that I wasn't appreciating in the movie, it is, uh, I think it's David Kelly as the servant of the Shah of Iran who is blindfolded the whole time. That's a very Michael Richards character. Yeah. I mean, there are a couple times where I laughed where it was like the Shah opens up the porthole and gets (laughs) splashed with water. That's the one that made me laugh, too. Right. And then you find out like, oh, uh, yeah, I put it in the washing machine. I put your clothes in the washing machine. So and I did appreciate the shipboard stuff. And uh, like you said, when uh, the sh- the SAS shows up and kicking the door and all that. I mean, there are a lot of jokes that are recycled or just twisted a little bit. Like at one point, President Cyclops is assassinated, which I think really was playing on the whole Reagan assassination attempt. And just, you know, hey, it's a major distraction. Look at this leader that got uh, assassinated. We're just going to pay attention to that or attempted assassination. And you cut to him in the hospital bed and there's a Secret Service guy next to him. In the movie version, it's Loretta Swit with two Secret Service agents, but she wasn't assassinated there was no attempt on her life so it's like that joke doesn't really land as well as this one you brought up a good point here with uh the manservant bit that and that running joke where the deacon would say if god 
didn't want us to panic. He wouldn't give us clean pants. Like that sort of runner with the, that's something that didn't work for me. And that kind of belies Marshall and Renwick's like light entertainment background because stuff like that, jokes like that would have ran on, you know, like the two Ronnie's or little large or one of those like seven o'clock, like ITV shows that stuff didn't work for me because it was just so late seventies, like laugh lines. Like you said though, earlier, I mean, there's, it's like, it's, it is like a Zaz film in the sense that there's like so much material. So if something clunks, two more better jokes will just sort of push it away. That is something like the, that whole bit with like the Shah of Iran, like, cause I've watched these a few times. I just scan through it. I was like, eh, no, no. Almost the entire cast is British. And they do some pretty passable American accents when, because a lot of the characters that are clearly, you know, I've seen them in dozens of British TV shows. They're playing Americans. They do pretty passable American accents. I got to give them a little bit of credit for that. Nobody draws attention to themselves with just how bad their accent is. I mean, apart from when the Brits play Russians, they kind of overdo it, which is absolutely fine because these are cartoon characters. So we should be able to laugh at them. And and there's also one of the title cards. I think it's on episode two. I'm going to steal that that phrase. It's fantastic. They're talking about the upcoming midterms and they call it autumn cannibalism. That is a fantastic term for the American midterms. I'm actually surprised by some of the jokes they reused in the movie. Uh, there's like, I, I'm surprised. They must have been really proud of this joke. The joke about the woman selling the lock of hair back to Frank Sinatra for an undisclosed sum, which is used in the TV series in them. And it's like, why? Why? Like, out of all the material, some a lot of it, not a lot of it, but a fair amount gets reused. But why that line, you know? Also in the miniseries, it only happens in one episode. Maybe they were only allowed so many per series or something. All of a sudden, a female topless newscaster shows up for one segment of news. And I was just like, okay, that was so random. Yeah, I think that's just there for the joke when the lottery numbers show up over her breasts. I'm not laughing at this nearly as much as you are. By the way, I had no idea that Barry Morse was actually British because... He's done so many American shows, yeah. I mean, God, he was Phil Gerard in The Fugitive, right? It's always weird when you hear an actor you know from American stuff. Like, I'm going to go back to The Walking Dead. You got Lenny James and the guy that plays Rick. And then you, 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 you've you heard them for so long. And then you see the behind the scenes and their thick-ass British accents. And you're just like, oh, that's right. They're fucking Brits. They do such good American accents. I've never seen Lenny do anything but the British accent, but his original. So I've I've not seen his American accent. That's funny. Lost in Space. Which version? The the 1998 movie. Oh, the only one that counts. Okay, yeah, I don't even remember him in that. He was Matt LeBlanc's partner. You know, uh, another mutant suicide squad and stuff like that. That, that, that. that was Lenny James. God, I have to go back and rewatch it. I mean, I, no, I take don't. any no, excuse to—I'll take any excuse to go back and watch that cinematic masterpiece. It's kind of a shame that the Whoops Apocalypse in America is only represented by the movie because I think the miniseries is so much better. It's not stream—I mean, it's streaming on BritBox, but you have to kind of import that. There, it's not streaming on any real American streaming service like Hulu or anything. It's never had a DVD release over here. I would absolutely own this. 
I would buy a DVD of this or a Blu-ray set if it were put out in Region 1. I think it's actually more relevant now than it was in 1982. Yes, some of the references and some of the jokes are going to be a little dated, but I think it's more relevant now. And I think the movie kind of does it dirty because the miniseries is so much better. Yeah, I totally agree. And by the way, proud BritBox subscriber. I don't have the Criterion channel, but I do have BritBox because where else am I going to get my Hercule Poirot uh, fix and Miss Marple? And I would actually just separate the TV show from the movie, like how you would separate a novel adaptation from the movie. They're two different entities, even though the movie recycles some bits from the TV show. The movie, like I've said, the movie is flawed. There's elements in it that don't work. There's a fair amount of elements at work, but like the TV show, there's stuff in there that I think just sweeps away the, the rotten shit. There's just great, like strong, like Zaz style gags where Loretta Swit exits and she's like wearing a towel and all that, like a, a towel in her hair. And then like moments later, I, I like one of her aides walks out dressed exactly like her. That hit me. There's dark invention involved. The, the fact that uh, uh, when, Peter Cook loses his hand. He says, I got microsurgery. It's just a hook. You know, uh, did you notice the gag with Daniel Benzali and Murray Hamilton after they hug Daniel Benzali? has got no shirt on underneath this. It's just his jacket and tie. And it's nobody mentions it. It's just like a weird, like you said, a Zaz sight gag. I laughed at that. Right. And I, I laughed at the bits where he's connected to the chain gang when he's like sort of gesticulating the chain gang has to move with them. That's like a cheap joke. But again, these things hit me. Is the movie dumber than the TV show? Yes, it is. I mean, were they sort of striving for an American audience that didn't give a shit? Yes, they did. But the thing is, is like I have a weakness for this kind of broad comedy. And as long as some jokes hit and there, I would say there's at least like 20 jokes that hit. Mike, Mike White may disagree with me, but there's 20 jokes that hit. It's an 80-minute movie, 89-minute movie. To me, the movie's a success. Maybe the bar isn't high, but that's my bar, and it's high enough. To compare the movie and leaving the miniseries out of it, like I said, when I first saw it when I was a teenager, I hated it. Not a single joke landed for me. Watching it again as a 47-year-old, a lot of the jokes did land. So I think when we're discussing the movie... It really matters how integrated you are into world politics to get it, I think. Because as a 16-year-old, I didn't give a crap. Now, I'm deeply invested, and the jokes work better. When I watch it as a teenager, just like the dumb jokes, and that's pretty much what still connects with me, just the dumb jokes, you know? Um, but again, I, I know uh, Mike's, because I know Mike didn't like the Sprocket script. I actually like the Sprocket script. So I know Mike... Mike and I don't really see eye to eye on comedy all the time. I did like Chicken Park, though. Come on. Who wouldn't love that, Mike? Yeah, but Michael, you got to remember, I'm the guy who made him sit through all the killer tomato movies. So he and I really don't see eye to eye on comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Josh, before we uh, took a break, you were about to talk about the politics of this and just how apropos of the moment all of this is. And I completely agree. I mean, we are in a different part of the world but not that far apart between the Middle East and Ukraine and just using these smaller countries and that situation in order to just stoke the 
animosity between these superpowers is yeah it's 2022 guys and it feels very much like 1986 88 well and you also have to remember and i'm a liberal johnny cyclops i actually think is way closer to joe biden than he was ronald reagan strangely enough i'm a liberal and i can't stand joe biden but that that sort of cluelessness and being led around the nose by your advisors that's very apt to today because Johnny Cyclops is not like a Trump allegory because he's not, you know, completely a moralist piece of shit. He's just sort of a clueless moron who wants to do good. And I think that's what Joe Biden is, a clueless moron who wants to do good. And then you've got the stuff with Russia, you know, swap out the whatever the fake prime minister or whatever was in the miniseries for Putin they're pretty close. There's a lot of similarities between today and the 1982 miniseries. I think even more than there was in 1982. And that makes it creepier, I think. Yeah, I would say Trump is definitely much closer to Peter Cook's character with all of the pixies and all these things. It kind of reminded me of like, you know, sweeping the forest and some of these things. You know, this is this is a tough hurricane. One of the wettest we've ever seen from the standpoint of water. I don't know if the movie is available on YouTube for free or not, or if it's even streaming anywhere. I think there's a new Blu-ray that's going to be coming out. At least, if you're listening to this, find the miniseries. You can find, like, I don't know if it's just all edited or if you can find the six episodes on their own, but the miniseries is at least worth checking out. And then if you liked that, go to the movie if you can find it because i'm not sure like you said it's coming out i don't know when this is going up versus when the blu-ray might be available it's on youtube the the, the whoops apocalypse movies on youtube i think it has like um like a hungarian title though but if you type in whoops apocalypse it'll show up and it's not like dubbed or subtitled or anything we got to point out the title i love that title Whoops, apocalypse. I actually think there should be a comma there because you need the pregnant pause. Whoops, apocalypse. That's a fantastic title for what we're talking about here. I like the song at the end credits as well, which it's a nice contrast between them starting the war and then this very jaunty song. It's very, you know, we'll meet again from Dr. Strangelove type of thing. I mean, if you like Dr. Strangelove a lot, this movie is pretty much like the next version of that, taking something that is deadly serious and putting very much a comic spin on it. This is not your fail safe. This is not threads. This is not the day after. This is more Dr. Strangelove. A lot of people confuse this with that horrible failed Fox series, Whoops, W-O-O-P-S, from the 90s that, you know, has made so many lists of the worst TV shows ever made. And it was pretty bad. A lot of people confuse that's the American version of this. No, it's not. They're not related at all, other than it's a comedy about the apocalypse. I get so many, like, I, I told a friend of mine that I was going to be doing this show, and he gets like, oh, I hated that show. And he was referring to the Fox show. And I'm like, no, no, no. It's not the same thing. So purge the Fox show from your memory. That has nothing to do with this. Fortunately, I had like you are the master of television. I had never even heard of that. I went out and tried to find it, found a whole bunch of them on YouTube, but not the first episode. It kind of sucks. Is the episode where Stuart Pankin plays Santa Claus on YouTube? I'm not sure if it's on YouTube, but I do remember seeing that one. 
Because I, I watched this piece of shit when it was new. I did too. The only thing that, that made it sort of cement in my memory, my ex-wife would never let me forget this. The main guy survives the atomic blast by being in a Volvo. And I had a Volvo at the time. So my ex-wife, obviously we were married at the time. She thought that was a hilarious joke because I drove a Volvo. Oh, was that the yuppie character? That, that was the school teacher one. Oh, okay. That's right. He was like the, the, the main, main character. Guy. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. We should just turn us into the whoops cast. You talked about like space 1999 and how there were like people from that. And uh, there's a lot of people from the Martian Chronicles that were all part of this as well. Oh God, yeah. that miniseries was so bad. I remember renting the VHS of that and being like, uh, is this supposed to be good? I was reading the Martian Chronicles for school. I, I had to read that to get my diploma. And then after I read it, I've loved the book. I said, let's check out the miniseries. My wife and I were watching this like, oh, God, this is awful. Yeah, I don't remember much about it other than not really caring for it. It's a great cast and they're all wasted, though. I have never seen this movie, but I, I've heard comparisons between Whoops Apocalypse and this, which is Canadian Bacon. Oh, I could see that. Yeah. yeah. I could sort of. Yeah. yeah. Like, Canadian Bacon is much more obviously comical and you never get the foreboding doom of that whoops apocalypse either the movie or the miniseries has canadian bacon is there are jokes that work but it's not really funny I, honestly rip torn is the one who steals that fucking movie every scene rip torn is in his comic timing is dead on and he's playing everything deadpan and straight well rip torn was a freaking genius whoops apocalypse that was another like it's on comedy central at 3 30 on a tuesday yeah that's been the only time i've seen bits and pieces are just on tv here and there but i've never sat down and watched the whole thing i've never seen it on tv i like i said i rented the vhs so i never owned it and when it came to the miniseries since that never i don't think ever aired over here i don't think that was ever on pbs or anything i remember when i was a video bootlegger i got a bootleg of the six episodes and that's the ones that i saw so i saw it as a as a bootleg of like oh this is so edgy you know no american network will broadcast it i'm surprised i never watched it before because i kind of like you mike i'm also an anglophile and watch british tv that's why i have brit boxes because i freaking love british tv so much never ran across this when i'd heard the title tons of times and i remember the american version and I, it took me forever to realize that there was the tv version and the film version because i remember the video box for the american for the the film version when i was working at blockbuster so i never checked that out and i never saw the uh the british series at all a lot of people, when they did hear about it, because I've talked to people in the preparation for this episode, they thought that the movie version was just a miniseries edited down into a movie. And I had to explain, no, these are two totally different things. They have the same vague plot and the same vague characters, but totally different cast. It's not just a miniseries edited into a movie. And I think with having the same title, I totally see why people think that, though, that they don't think they're two different things. What's the legacy of this in England? Because this is basically, 
obscure in the U.S. Like, does anyone know? Like, is this like a, the movie and the TV show? Are they cult favorites? Are they sort of forgotten today? Are they just beloved? Like, does anyone know like what the status of that is? I can ask some people. Obviously, it won't be in time for this, but I've got some friends in the UK who are around our age group. I, I'll ask them if they remember this and see what kind of reactions I get because it, like you said. It's almost forgotten. I don't even see, like, I went, after I watched the miniseries, I went to find some reviews of it. All I could find were reviews of the movie. I can't even find reviews for the miniseries. It just seems to have come out and then was forgotten until BritBox put it up, like, a year ago or whatever it was. It should have a bigger presence, and I'm hoping that when people listen to this, They'll go and seek it out and they might tell us we're full of shit and they hated both versions and that's fine. I just want more people to see it. You don't have to agree with me, even though I'm right. Cause there's a lot of great British comedy talent that's unknown in the U S Harry Enfield. If he's known, he's only known as being the voice of the, uh, the Travelocity gnome, but he has like a wide catalog of great comedy. And I really just want to, if I can underline anything, if anyone got through this episode, I'm sure many people have, I phrased that poorly, please, please. I mean, if you like, like Monty Python style absurdity, if you like dark comedy, it, I would suggest check out like uh, Marshall and Renwick uh, end of part one. Uh, there's the first series they did after the Burkus way it's on YouTube, hot metal. That was a, uh, like a, the Rupert Murdoch parody. I believe that's on YouTube. One Foot in a Grave, it, like pretty much one of the biggest hits of the 90s in the UK. Check it out. These guys really should be better. Like the, I, I want them at least on the level of a Chris Morris, you know, where he's like at least known and respected by a lot of comedy writers in the US. These guys, like I said, they're the Algina Mike Reese of the UK. And I think they need more attention. If you're a British comedy nerd and you don't know about these guys, please, please check them out. I think you'll enjoy what they have to offer. If you enjoy the pinnacle of British humor, the young ones, if you enjoy that, you will like Whoops Apocalypse. And, yes. there's some young, and there's young ones actors in both the movie and the miniseries. But if you like the humor of the young ones, it's really close to, although more politicized, the humor in Whoops Apocalypse, at least the miniseries. I had heard of One Foot in the Grave, but I never realized that in 1996, Bill Cosby was in a, say, adaptation of One Foot in the Grave, just called Cosby. That ran yeah, loose. for four years. I remember the Cosby show, obviously, but I don't remember Cosby. Isn't that the one where, where Felicia Rashad came back? But Yeah. Because I was confused that, wasn't there also the Cosby Mysteries? Yes, yeah. Yes. Because yeah. I actually bought at the Dollar Tree maybe a year ago the old 70s Cosby show. They had the complete series for a dollar. I picked that up. I remember that being funny. I don't know if I could watch it now. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break, and we're going to play a preview for next week's show. It will startle your senses, challenge your intellect, and alter your perception of the future by taking you there. Star Trek, the motion picture, rated G. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Mike and Josh. So, Josh, what has been going on with you, sir? 
school, 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 school. I'm in school for digital media technology now, so I've fallen behind on Retrodrome and everything else because I'm making short films for school. But, haha, I'm an award-winning filmmaker now. I recently won two of my shorts, an informational short and a surreal mindfuck short. Both won first place in a local film festival at my college. So I'm now officially an award-winning filmmaker, and I feel like such a sellout saying that. And Mike, how about you? What's been going on with you? Well, uh, i got to let you know Shock Cinema 61 came out not too long ago. I'm in that, if you want to check that out. Robin Bougie's final volume of his uh, Cinema Sewer collections, that should be out in June. It's available for pre-order if you want to visit his site. I think it's the Cinema Sewer Etsy. I have the first two of those, and I really enjoyed them. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, there's a lot more to go. I mean, there's a lot of great material, and uh, the final volume's coming out, like I said. Towards the very waning years of Cinema Sewer, I had a column called What If? You know, what if Peter Bogdanovich directed The Exorcist? Uh, it was a column that ran in there. Uh, I put in the, I'm almost finished with this, Mike. I got a spinoff of that. It's called Adam Film Comment. It's really just new material of all what ifs. We got a oral history of uh, the Frank Sinatra Die Hard. We have a, a we rank all the uh, sequels in the uh, Sorcerer franchise. Take a look at Gal, the one movie Gallagher made. I'm hoping to get this together by the fall. Uh, I've already got some more art. I just I'm just waiting on some art. If your uh, audience likes alternate universe scenes about movies that almost were, then please, please uh, check out Adam Film Comment. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. When your song got to number one And just when your girl said You're my man And you said Wow, I'm having a great time Love and success are both infectious But crying out loud Did something hit us You're still waiting Guess the times are really changing And you say, what on earth is happening? I forgot this umbrella That kept me warm and gave me shelter So why don't I feel much better? This dream becomes a nightmare Optimistic. Optimistic.